Welcome to the How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast, presented by the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber in Boston. Join us as we review some of the more complicated colon and rectal cancer cases and discuss the treatment decisions with leading medical experts in the colorectal cancer field. This is Dr. Ronald Blade of the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I'm here to introduce today's podcast, The Treatment of Peritoneal Metastases for Colorectal and Appendix Cancers. This particular topic brings up important issues, particularly with intraperitoneal chemotherapy and the issue of cytoreductive surgery. There's no true randomized trial on these topics, There's a lot of opinion, but very little fact. However, patients come to us with very few options. We're going to discuss the value of cytoreductive surgery. We'll first ask, does it have value? And if it should be done, should it be combined with HIPEC, which is the heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy, or with extraperitoneal chemotherapy called EPIC? Should it be combined only with systemic chemotherapy? Our first expert is Dr. Nelia Malnichuk. She's the head of our peritoneal metastasis program here at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. She'll introduce a case and then discuss the issues. She'll be followed by Dr. Tom Abrams. Dr. Abrams is a senior physician and medical oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He will discuss who should get HIPEC, who should get systemic chemotherapy, He'll also discuss who should not have surgery and who should have other alternative treatments. Finally, Dr. Jeff Meyerhart and I will wrap it up. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for coming and talking about HIPEC. And HIPEC is, stands for Heated Interperitoneal Chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, right. And you are our sort of surgical expert here. So why don't you introduce your tel- yourself and tell us a little bit about the history of HIPEC. Of course. So I'm Nalia Malnichuk, and I'm a colorectal surgeon here at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, I'm also a director of peritoneal surface malignancy, and we started HIPEC program at the Brigham more than two years ago at this point. Heated interperitoneal chemotherapy has been around for actually a long, long time. It's not something new that we have been just started using. And uh, it has been spearheaded by Dr. Paul Sugarbaker in 1980s, but uh, there were multiple... Uh, Phase one trials in 70s and 60s uh, about the safety and feasibility of using intraperitoneal heated chemotherapy. When did it really expand from Dr. Sugarbaker's experience to others? So there were more trials in 90s and early 2000. Uh, some of them were uh, randomized trials. Um, Some of it just single-arm trials uh, that looked at feasibility and outcomes of use of heated chemotherapy um, or just early postoperative chemotherapy in patients with colorectal malignancy and appendiceal malignancy. Some of the the trials were from Netherlands, some from Europe, um, some from the U.S. In early 2000s, it became more popular, and now a lot of centers in the United States do offer interperitoneal heated chemotherapy. 
So we hear about peritoneal chemotherapy for ovarian cancer, which has been shown to be very uh, useful, has good efficacy. What are the patients that we use uh, heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy for as a colorectal surgeon? So as a colorectal surgeon, we use it uh, for patients who have uh, peritoneal disease from colorectal primary or from appendiceal primary. Um, appendiceal cancer is very heterogeneous cancer, so patients have low-grade disease, high-grade disease, and systemic chemotherapy is, is actually not very effective for patients with low-grade disease uh, and also actually not as effective for patients with high-grade disease. So for some of these patients, uh, cytoreduction and intraperitoneal heated chemotherapy is the only good option. But then for the patients with uh, colorectal uh, peritoneal metastasis, we use it if the systemic chemotherapy stopped working or uh, um, they're just not responding to it, but they're still candidate for complete cytoreduction, meaning that we can go in and remove all the visible tumor and then potentially give them uh, heat chemotherapy. When is it best used? Who is the ideal patient? So the, the ideal patient should be able to tolerate the operation. The operation is a big, big operation that sometimes lasts from 5 to 12 hours, so they have to be in very good functional status. We also don't want them to have metastatic disease to, to the lungs uh, or a high burden of metastatic disease to the liver. If they have easily resectable liver metastasis, they could still be a candidate. But the major thing that uh, kind of drives uh, who is the best candidate is, is are we able to do complete cytoreduction? Are we able to remove all the visible tumors in the peritoneal cavity? And only then we are able to do heated interperitoneal chemotherapy. And so is there an increased survival with heated interperitoneal chemotherapy? We know that the, there is increased survival in patients who had complete cytoreduction and intraperitoneal heated chemotherapy. The study from Netherlands did show that uh, in patients who had complete cytoreduction from colorectal uh, primary, mm -hmm. uh, those patients' five-year survival was 45%. We don't really know how much uh, extra benefit comes from the heated chemotherapy and how much comes from cytoreduction, and some of these questions will be answered in the future trials. And I've also read that sometimes, more with appendiceal cancer, where there's a mucus uh, ascites burden, that this particular operation can also palliate or improve quality of life because it can ablate the ascites. Yeah, there are some reports that there are some uh, studies that do show decrease of ascites for the intraperitoneal heated chemotherapy. That has to be used sparingly in the, the patient who is ideal surgical candidate who will not suffer uh, complications from the heated chemotherapy and just the, for, for palliation purposes. So that brings me to my next question because I know these operations are very large, they're very long, there's a lot of bowel sections oftentimes. What are the most feared complications of this surgery? So most feared complication probably would be um, EC fistula, enterocutaneous fistula, or anastomotic leak. The major complications come from the surgical resections. So the more surgical resection you have to do, the more uh, pieces of bowel you have to remove, if you have to remove the spleen, if you have to remove parts of the stomach. So it all adds up. So the less tumor burden the patient has, the uh, less complications they'll have. And what are the complications of the chemotherapy agents? We'll talk to Dr. Abrams, but you give it in a heated way, and then the patient's 
can get some side effects of the chemo, not just of the surgery. We do use mitomycin C, and the major side effects or complications from heated mitomycin C would be renal toxicity and pulmonary toxicity. But during those surgeries, we are very careful about the fluids we are giving the patient, not too much and not too little. And uh, in terms of the pulmonary toxicity, we do uh, decrease the FiO2 during anesthesia time, and uh, we actually haven't seen major toxicity due to, to, due to the chemotherapy agent. So I know you've been doing some of these patients with the right anesthesiologist using an enhanced recovery protocol. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the results, or at least your impressions, when using this enhanced recovery protocol. So we started using enhanced recovery protocol for the patients with, um, on who we performed heated chemotherapy and cytoreduction about a year and a half ago. And uh, in the past, we used to think the more fluid you give the patient, the better it is because it protects the kidneys. But in patient, in the regular patients who we perform colorectal resection, enhanced recovery pathway have showed good outcomes. So we started using it for our patients, and we did see that our length of stay, meaning patients stay less in the hospital, their bowel function returns faster to uh, to normal. They're able to eat faster, and in the past those patients would be would would be, would be staying in the hospital for nine ten days. Now the patients these patients go home on five six days. Yeah, it's just for our listeners is that enhanced recovery is our anesthesiologists will put an esophageal Doppler down to look at the heart filling. And if the heart is full, just putting in more and more fluid actually does not increase the cardiac output and does not increase the benefits to the kidneys. It, it's a more scientific way of looking at optimal uh, fluid balance. As you said, we use it for our regular colorectal surgery patients, and it's now beginning to take hold in some of these very big operations. So there's a trial coming together uh, talking about HIPEC versus this other way of giving peritoneal chemotherapy, which is given postoperatively. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Exactly. So the trial is uh, comparing HIPEC, uh, which is uh, heated chemotherapy, given during the operation versus EPIC, which is early postoperative intraperitoneal chemotherapy. We do know that cytoreduction works for the patients who have peritoneal surface malignancy, but the question about what form of intraperitoneal chemotherapy to give still remains unanswered. Um, So one option is to do it during the surgery, and it's heated, it's given once, and it lasts about 90 minutes. You see uh, where exactly the fluid gets distributed, and hopefully it covers the whole peritoneal surface. Uh, EPIC is given postoperatively, so we, after complete cytoreduction, we implant uh, the uh, port in the abdominal cavity, and postoperatively, when the, on postoperative day one or two, when the patient is feeling okay after the surgery and there's no significant complications, you can you give this early postoperative chemotherapy, and that's 5-FU and leucovorin, so it's a different agent. So this, uh, we're starting this trial at the Brigham, and it has been already started at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, um, and this should be able to answer, do patients with hyper versus hyper have more complications, and what the outcomes would be in terms of the survival. Great, and it, it, it sounds like that it avoids the, the heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy, which 
uh, has its own morbidity and is the goal to have same efficacy but less morbidity? Exactly, exactly. And we don't know at this point that, uh, which one is better, but criticism of EPIC is that catheters stay in just one place and potentially chemotherapy is not well distributed. And criticism of HIPIC is potentially those patients have more complications. So this trial will answer those questions. So what about the future? Are there new agents or new techniques that are coming along that we should uh, pay attention to? Uh, yeah, so there are actually a couple of trials coming from Europe. One of them would answer the question, is uh, HIPEC beneficial as a prophylaxis for patients who have perforated colorectal cancer? So we know that those patients potentially have a spillage of cells in the intraperitoneal cavity, and those patients are at a higher risk for peritoneal metastasis. So maybe doing uh, heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy during the primary resection would benefit those patients. There is also, um, people are looking at the use of laparoscopy in the patients with peritoneal uh, metastasis, and uh, that can be used in patients with limited amount of disease to hopefully have a better postoperative outcome in terms of the surgical complications. I hope new agents are getting uh, looked at and developed for the better efficacy uh, for this metastasis. And also some people are looking at delivering heated uh, chemotherapy under pressure. Uh, so there's lots of exciting uh, developments uh, in the field that are coming up. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for coming in this morning. We hope to have you back on the podcast uh, and talk about uh, other things in our practice here at the Brigham. Abrams, who's a medical oncologist from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, to talk about HIPEC and systemic therapy for these difficult uh, patients with peritoneal metastases. So, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks, Ron. I'm a uh, senior physician at Dana-Farber and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. I treat uh, GI malignancies at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Uh, as a medical oncologist, I, I see patients with all sorts of GI malignancies, but I do have a lot of patients with peritoneal carcinomatosis, so I'm intimately uh, familiar with these malignancies and how they're treated. So about two years ago, when Dr. Melnichuk came on board, we were able to offer heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy as an option for our patients with peritoneal metastases. And the main question that comes to a patient and to you and to Dr. Melnichuk is, when is it appropriate to take that route for treatment, or when is it best to really consider systemic chemotherapy, either instead of or before heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy? I think it's a it's a difficult question indeed, and and there's certainly a lot of controversy uh, with respect to who the best candidates for for HIPEC might be, and and what the sequencing should be. A lot of the data have been retrospective, single institution studies that don't really answer that question to a great degree of, of accuracy. Uh, so every institution kind of has their own approaches. Clearly, we need better studies, larger studies, to really give us a, a better idea. But the other issue is that the po patient population is so heterogeneous, and you have patients with different malignancies different histologies and, uh, and, 
and the biological behavior of these diseases are so are so variable. So I think that you have to take all of that data into account before you make a decision. Patients who are in great condition, who have what appears to be fairly low degree of peritoneal uh, carcinomatosis, no intestinal issues, I think those are the candidates for, for directly going to, to, to uh, cytoreduction and, and high-pack high because it seems from the data that those are the patients that are going to really benefit the most. They're going to have the, the years of, of long-term disease-free survival where you know, their quality of life is not impacted. Patients who come to you who already have intestinal obstruction, who have radiographic apparent disease, uh, lots of a mental disease, their, their intestines are, are not working well, I think that sending them straight to surgery or having them get surgery at all is usually a big mistake. You want to give them at least some systemic chemotherapy, see how it goes, uh, before you even consider it. And in my experience, patients who have real dense peritoneal disease do not do very well with these procedures. They, 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 they have a lot of complications, and ultimately, I don't know that it benefits them more than if they were just to have had chemotherapy the whole way through. There is also this concept of just going to cytoreductive surgery, but without high pack and sort of reducing the burden, not getting every cell but then giving the patients chemotherapy afterwards. Tell us about what do you think that concept, which is percolating back up in the literature now, is something that should be done more. We used to discount the idea of surgical cytoreduction in a lot of different diseases in the metastatic setting, and I think we're learning that getting bulky disease out could be a net benefit to patients, whether it's visceral disease or peritoneal disease. So. I think if a patient has, in particular, an area that is really bothering them, they're having persistent intestinal obstruction, uh, there's a painful metastasis, I think, you know, cytoreduction uh, makes a lot of sense in, the, in, 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 that, in that patient population. And then you kind of can give them chemotherapy afterward and see how it goes. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I haven't actually done that for a number of patients, but the patients I have had uh, who've, who've, who've gone that route have done well. So I, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to try. The bottom line is that uh, this is as personalized an approach as you can have. And I think that whenever you're trying to make these decisions, you really have to have the patient in mind. You have to think about what makes sense. And what makes sense for one patient may not make sense for another. So. I think sequencing is just really a very personalized uh, type of treatment. Individualized. Individualized, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you talked about histology. Now, we're colorectal surgeons, and we see a lot of patients with colon and rectal adenocarcinoma metastasizing to the peritoneum. And then you have appendiceal cancers, which is a separate a AJCC category right. now. Tell us a little bit about your experience with those two different histologies. Yeah, so I think the appendiceal histology runs the gamut, and it, it can be uh, a very low-grade tumor such as carcinoid, which can can spread in a peritoneal fashion, or this concept of, of lamin, which is these low-grade appendiceal mucinous neoplasms. 
And I think those kinds of tumors really lend themselves to high PEC and cytoreduction. They're not responsive to chemotherapy at all, and that's really the only tool you have. And because of the biological favorability of those tumors, patients can do well for long, long periods of time. And so when that's the histology, especially lamin, I, I absolutely want to involve a peritoneal surgeon from, from day one. Then you get into these goblet cell carcinoids and frank adenocarcinomas in the appendiceal realm. And those are much more like the colon rectal adenocarcinomas where you really do want to give patients, I think, some chemotherapy up front and kind of see how they do over a period of three to six months before saying, okay, you're a good candidate for the surgery. Because if the biology is unfavorable, I don't think you're going to get much benefit out of it. I, and I think the colorectal cancers are the same way. You know, you just, you don't know where a patient's going to go from day one and chemotherapy is going to be essential anyway. So you might as well give the chemotherapy up front and see what happens. And then you have really aggressive histologies sometimes like signet ring from colon or most often from gastric cancer. And, and for sure you're going to want to give chemotherapy up front to those patients. They might benefit from from cytoreductive surgery and HIPEC at some point, but they're less likely to and overall and certainly unlikely to if they don't have any benefit from systemic treatment. So cytoreductive chemotherapy and then on the good responders, then cytoreductive surgery with HIPEC. Right. And then once they recover, reassess whether they get uh, additional chemotherapy afterwards. And are the, are the agents typically uh, for the colorectal and adeno-appendiceal typically Folfox your uh, first regimen? Yeah, I think that you could use Folfox or Folfiri. I don't think that there's any significant benefit of one over the other. Um, we tend to use Folfox. It's convention, but I think Folfiri works just as well. Ultimately, it's a very good indicator uh, after four cycles of whether they're really getting benefit or not. Mm -hmm. um, if they are, you know, usually you'll see patients say, my, my abdomen is feeling better, it's, I'm not having as much pain, bowels are emptying better, and, and that's, a, that's usually a very clear indicator that things are moving in the right direction. What about VEGF inhibitors? I think if we have surgery on the table, I tend to shy away from them. I don't think that the benefits are so great as to uh, jeopardize uh, future surgery. Yes, it is uh, always a bit of a wild card yeah. if you give the VEGF and let's say the patient perforates. There are a few reports where the patients do okay, but it, it always makes everybody nervous uh, just by their nature they inhibit healing. So, right. right. Any other thoughts for our listeners about this particular disease category? I, I think it's, it, it presents unique challenges. You know, patients really are very uh, variable in their course. I think we have to keep this in mind for our patients because there, there is a, uh, a bias amongst medical oncologists against uh, cytoreduction and HIPEC, but I think as data mount, we realize there are patients who are going to benefit and benefit greatly. And if we close ourselves off to this, uh, then I think we're missing opportunities to really help patients significantly. 
but it's clear that not every patient is a good candidate and patients with very dense peritoneal disease, they don't benefit from chemotherapy. They're not going to benefit from surgery and that's, I think, uh, become very clear over the years. Well, great, Tom. Thanks very much. Great pleasure to be here. All right. Thank you. Good afternoon, Jeff. We just heard from Nelia and Tom about the patients that come in with peritoneal metastases really as their only disease burden and the concepts of intraperitoneal chemotherapy and cytoreductive surgery. So you heard Tom. Do you agree with his approach to the patients with intraperitoneal metastases in terms of individualizing the therapy? And in particular, are there any cell types or patients that you think this is a good approach for? Yeah, so this is really the area where I think it's the most controversy amongst both medical oncologists themselves and certainly medical oncologists and surgical oncologists because it's the area where we really wish we had much better data. And it's also because it is really a spectrum, as Tom pointed out, of diseases from the cystic mucus adenoma to a true adenocarcinoma, and then different levels of aggressiveness of the adenocarcinomas. So with the lack of data that we have, it is really something that has to be a discussion with a patient who has isolated peritoneal disease, where at least the approach I take is they need to be informed. They need to be informed where there's data and lack of data, as well as the fact that some patients do reasonably well recovery, and some patients have a real tough time recovering from both cytoreduction and certainly when they also get high pack with it. You know, I've had patients where it's months long of recovery. But again, there are patients where I do think it's probably controlled their disease for a while, particularly the ones with the much more benign, non-malignant situation. But even some adenocarcinomas, you know, I think there's some patients where, at least for them, it may be the right thing, and we certainly would like trials to really be able to define who they are. It's interesting about peritoneal carcinomatosis because it does come from so many different cell types. And as we know, appendix and colorectal are, are different disease types nowadays. But even within colorectal and within appendix, there's more variation. And the cell type certainly helps in the decision making. What about cytoreduction surgery itself? Do you think that has a value? Yeah, I mean, I think for some patients who are symptomatic, but not at the level necessarily as a frozen bowel, that there's, and where their tumor is not responding to chemo. Because the other thing is, though, while we think of peritoneal, peritoneal diseases less responsive to chemo, there are certainly patients with systemic chemo mm. that have responses and improvement of their symptoms. But for those who don't, where it's possible to think about a reduction, or there's a particular area that's causing a lot of pain or symptom, you know, there's where there may be a role for, again, I think it's probably a limited number of patients, but there are some patients where that may have a palliative effect. We've started using this enhanced recovery pathway, which has been championed really in elective surgery, in these more complex patients, and, and actually all across surgery. We've had the pulmonary transplant people even talk to us, but we use it for these high pec patients. And it has made a, a big difference in terms of the amount of 
fluid that is retained and also in the amount of time in hospital. So it is getting a little safer, but that doesn't mean that it's complication-free. It's a very huge and morbid procedure, and you know, recovery is, is long. And, and finally, we see a lot of patients, particularly as, at a tertiary care referral center like ours, that come in with what we call, call the, quote, frozen abdomen. And what do you think is the best approach? When we see these as a team, both surgeon and medical oncologist, how should we approach this patient? Yeah, I mean, these are really the toughest, some of the toughest patients. Somewhat depends on where they are in their continuum of their disease, how their overall performance status is. But we'll certainly have patients that, except for the fact that their bowel's not working, they have systemic disease that's still potentially responsible, responsive to chemotherapy, that they're still active. And, and those are the patients where we consider doing a venting G2 parental support nutritionally, and then trying to continue chemotherapy. But again, I think that really has to be an informed discussion with patients uh, what that means, because it's very tough to have patients not be able to eat, to have a venting G-tube, and really just for the sensation of taste, but everything comes out, and then have parental nutrition. But again, I think for some patients, that's an appropriate approach. Um, but it is, it's one of the biggest challenges in GI oncology, and that not just colorectal, but a bunch of other GI oncology diseases, gastric cancer, pancreas, where you get these frozen bowels that are, that are a tough situation. And so the last question, are there any new agents in the pipeline that you see might be of benefit either as an intraperitoneal uh, agent or a systemic agent that is particularly good against peritoneal disease? Yeah, I mean, there was a period of time where it was thought that bevacizumab, that the VEGF inhibitors would uh, maybe better for peritoneal disease. I'm not sure that's totally borne out in the data. So I, I think we don't really have particular agents that would, systemically, that would be a benefit, uh, particularly for peritoneal disease. You know, I would also argue we don't really know when you give HIPEC, is it the actual agent or the fact that you're introducing an agent that causes an inflammatory response that for some patients may be a benefit. And so, again, when you think about are there different agents you could you can infuse into the abdomen, it's still unclear is that the more important thing or just having some inflammatory response occur. Well, it's an area where we have to do, uh, as medical people, a lot more work in order to include more patients with perineal metastases in sort of a, a better prognosis. Yeah, and this is really an area that clinical, and clinical trials are challenging in this setting because of the variability, but it also requires buy-in from providers and patients that that's an area that really needs to be studied. All right, thanks. Thanks, Ron.